Chapter 21 of The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by David Baer. The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners, by Agnes Gibern. Chapter 21 more about the wild winds. In the circulation sketch of the last chapter, showing how the air of the atmosphere flows ceaselessly to and fro over the whole face of the earth, the two halves of the earth were coupled together. Not wrongly so, for the bare outline of the general plan is the same to north and south of the equator. Still, one half of the world is very far from being the exact copy of the other half. Exact copies are common enough in human works, but not at all common in divine handiwork. There we have infinite variety, filling up systematic outlines. Since no two leaves of a tree have ever been found absolutely the same in form, it is, to say the least, improbable that one half of the world should be a slavish imitation of the other half. If the entire earth were covered by one enormous ocean of water, then indeed such a system of winds might be carried out in all of its parts, with little or no variation. The circulation of the atmosphere would be in that case less difficult to understand and less interesting to study than it is now. But our world contains much land as well as much sea, and where land exists, the rapid heating and cooling of it causes great varieties of air currents breaking through general plans to any extent. Broad belts of trade winds have been described enfolding the earth like sashes. These trade winds do exist, and they would exist all around the world throughout the whole year if not hindered, but in places they are very much hindered. Suppose, for instance, a burning desert not far from a trade wind region. The air above the desert becomes in the summer months tremendously heated, swelling in size and flowing upward then arises a need for heavier air to flow in from somewhere else towards the desert to restore the lost balance of the atmosphere the trade wind lies conveniently near and it is of no use to protest that the said trade is wanted near the equator here is the most pressing need for the moment so the busy trade is bent out of its regular course to become a sea breeze blowing inland and the needs of the equator have to be supplied from some other quarter such needs are always supplied the balance of the air must be kept. If the steady ordinary winds are not equal to their task, a hurricane or two will intervene, doing in a very short time the work required. Land influences of this kind so often divert the trades that they can only be said to hold full sway over broad reaches of ocean, not usually upon continents. Monsoons in general are merely turned or deflected trades, drawn over by overheated land from their proper route, the Indian monsoon is a familiar phrase to most English people, at least to those who have relatives in India. It is commonly applied to the soft southwest monsoon, which brings the heavy rainy season. Footnote. Two monsoons blow regularly in India, taking turns. The southwest monsoon lasts about five months, from May to October. Northeast, about another five months, between October and May, each being divided from the other by an irregular month called the breaking of the monsoon, during which violent storms and even hurricanes often take place in the struggle of the disturbed atmosphere to regain its lost balance. End footnote. Here is a little description of the rainy season, 
written by one on the spot, which helps bring it before our imagination. Footnote. Mrs. Murray Mitchell's In India. End footnote. I wish you could see how it rains. For eleven whole days it has come down incessantly, and the compound is like a lake. People are beginning to grumble, but I like it. The air is so much fresher and pleasanter, and one feels so much more alive than in the terrible heat which preceded this downpour. And then again in August, nearly two months later. The rain is most preserving. It comes down not in ordinary drops, but in sheets of water. The whole place is ankle-deep, and I have just been watching the servants wading through the slush with their queer little wooden umbrellas over their heads, bringing in the dishes for breakfast. All Indian kitchens, you know, are at a little distance from the house. Everything is damp and disagreeable and moldy. It is quite an occupation to look after one's books and clothes, and after all, no care avails to save them. The books would break your heart. Their faces, so fresh and fair when we left home, are spotted and spoiled. The very pillows smell as if they've come out of a charnel house. The gloves you wear today are white with mold tomorrow. Your boots the same, and your very hair seems mildewed. Nature, just now, is wildly luxuriant and beautiful. The effect, of course, of the bountiful monsoon. The woods are full of rich loveliness. The very ditches are turned into beds of beauty, covered thick with beautiful caladium leaves, blotched and streaked with crimson, purple and brown. Now the southwest monsoon is nothing more or less than the northeast trade of that region, completely turned or doubled back upon itself, and made to flow in steady currents over India. But what of the northeast monsoon, which flows during the winter months of the north? Why, that is only our old friend, the northeast trade, unchanged. When the influence of the desert lessens through cooler weather, the trade returns to its natural course, and flows once more towards the equator. Footnote. The world has other monsoons besides those of India. There are African monsoons, caused by the great African deserts drawing aside part of the Atlantic trade, and there are Central American monsoons, formed out of deflected Pacific trades. End footnote. Perhaps the force of moving air is shown in no more marked way than in its lashing of the ocean surface into mighty waves. Even when standing on the shore, one may gain some idea of the tremendous power of ocean waves, lifted and driven onward entirely by the pressure of the gentle transparent air, which floats so sleepily around us on a quiet summer's day. Without an ocean of air, the ocean of water would be waveless. As good a view as any of ocean billows, seen from the safe vantage of firm ground, may be obtained on the Chesil Beach, a long reach of shingle extending between Portland and the mainland some ten miles in length, and rising up to a piled shingle height of about sixty feet. If a strong wind blows from the Atlantic straight up the ridge, a curious contrast can be seen by one standing on the summit. Within, the bay between Weymouth and Portland lies calm and blue, still as a lake, broken only by ripples. Without, beyond Chesil Beach, a boiling sea of great waves heaves wildly, and one monster billow after another, twenty feet or more in height, reaching far along the line of shingle, rolls fiercely up, curls grandly over, and falls with a deafening crash, sending forth a rush of foam and spray, grinding pebbles together and tossing them about like sand. No human being could live beneath the crushing weight of one of those waves. The noise is so deafening, even in a moderate gale, 
that I have tried in vain to hear words shouted in vigorous masculine tones close at my side. In a storm, so mighty is the turmoil, that a small brig has actually been lifted by the sea, carried over the top of the ridge, and landed on the shingle slope beyond, whence a way was made for it later into the quiet bay. The action of the wind upon the ocean surface varies much in different places. A greater contrast could hardly be found than between the vast majestic rollers of the Atlantic, a quarter of a mile or more apart, traveling in slow succession, and the broken chopping waves of the channel, dashing into and over one another with impatient and undignified restlessness. Again, one may turn from the stately water hills of the sea, off the Cape of Good Hope, forty feet or more from crown to hollow, calm in motion and deep blue in hue, to the wild perilous turmoil of the North Sea. One or two quoted descriptions of the latter will speak more forcibly than any words of mine can do as to the awful power of the wind over the ocean and of the ocean over aught that lies in its grasp. The grey fitful waves roll over the dogger, and the steady shrill wind is lulled but seldom. The sea does not run true, and sometimes after a succession of glossy rollers has travelled westward, there comes a furious northerly drift, which is met by a swift whirling currents from the south. The charging waves meet in thunder. The rearmost seas climb in foaming piles over the shattered bulge of those that reel back from the onset and the wild hurly-burly lasts until the strong set of the westerly roll masters the leaping cross-drift, and then once more the grey sliding procession moves inexorably shoreward. In December 1883, there was another storm that will soon not be forgotten. To say there was a heavy sea expresses nothing. That tremendous convulsion passes the power of descriptive words. A powerful steam carrier was hit by one unlucky sea, which not only burst her, but shivered her into tiny scraps. Strong wire ropes were snapped like worsted. Wire stays which held tore up great lumps of the bulwarks, and the amazing force of the sea was shown by the fact that the wood of the torn bulwarks was cut as cleanly as if a huge knife had shorn through. Dormouth, Lowstoft and Grimsby harbors looked as if they'd been under heavy shell-fire for many days after the gale. Hardly a boat escaped without serious damage, and the wonder is that any of the fleets got home. Footnote J. Runciman End footnote And again from the same pen. The wind met one like a solid body, and its savage storming call stunned the nerve. It piled up a sea much worse than several I have seen when a perfect hurricane was blowing. Then the run of the sea was crossed grain, and when two or three charging currents met, they reared up into a hill that fell away like a waterspout. Finding that it was impossible to see anything save a dark flurry of tortured water, or to hear anything save the numbing thunder of the gale, I tried to snatch some sleep, but it was a hopeless attempt. The vessel was riding beautifully, sometimes when it seemed as if she must actually fall off the side of the sea. She sidled prettily up the flank of the gloomy, threatening mountain, topped it like a bird, and swept down the rushing slope without so much as shipping a splash of spray. Harder and harder the wind blew, 
The rearmost wave strove to climb over the front ranks. The blown spray cut like sharp lashes, and the ugly hills that were veiled by that cruel drift made bellowing sounds as they rushed on their sliding bases. Imagine the brightened downs magnified. Imagine also the surface of the downs covered by tumbling hillocks, and then imagine two or three of the bluffs of the downs terraced one above the other, and you have an image of such proportions of that sea as the eye could take it in at one view. The bright strength and speed of the torn rollers were splendid, but I felt a rage in my heart as I thought that those beautiful, awful waves might kill some of the poor fellows who had been sent out in rickety, ill-found vessels. Such word-painting as this makes even a landsman able to faintly realize what it is to be out on the North Sea when the winds are in their rougher moods. But to learn the uttermost strength of the soft air, to lift and wreathe the ocean's surface into death-dealing waves, we must go to the tropics. On the 31st of October, 1876, more than a million human beings, natives of India, lay quietly down to sleep on certain flat lands about the mouth of the Ganges, after it is joined by the Brahmaputra, and on certain low-lying islands at its mouth. The islands are built out of the soil which is constantly carried down by those two great rivers. The people counted themselves safe that night, safe as usual. No particular fears troubled them. They knew that these low, unprotected lands were subject now and then to sudden inundation from storm waves, lashed up by a circular hurricane on the ocean and brought to their shores. But such catastrophes were only occasional. They had taken precautions. They had built their little huts on platforms or mounds of earth some three feet in height, and they had counted themselves fairly secure. At ten o'clock a storm raged, but without any unusual features one of the ordinary cyclonic storms of the tropics. But at the hour of midnight came an awful warning cry, passed on from man to man, and overtaken by the hurrying foe. The water is upon us. One cyclone wave after another, drawn up at sea in the whirlwind center, was launched ruthlessly by the fierce gale over the islands and the low-lying mainland. The rushing tide bore all before it, no less than 3,000 square miles of country lay soon under water from 10 to 20 feet at least in depth. Little use were the hut platforms against this mighty incursion. Thousands of inhabitants died at once, died in their sleep, or woke up to a moment's agony before they perished. Some climbed the trees near their huts. Others were flung by the rough billows into the branches. Some floated on the roofs of their huts, torn away from the mud walls and others clung to the logs of wood, but too many of these were carried hopelessly out to the sea. The flood did not last long. By morning it was subsiding, and by noon the unhappy refugees in treetops could descend. But wind and wave had done too surely their fearful work. Two hundred and fifteen thousand human beings were destroyed in one half hour by a single fell swoop of the elements. End of chapter 21